Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. UN condemns Israel for using excessive force at Gaza border. And the DRC opposition warns government not to prevent Jean-Pierre Bemba from coming home. In economics news, African governments urge to strengthen their macroeconomic management. And in sports news, a FIFA World Cup kicks off today in Russia. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The International Criminal Court is to launch an assistance fund for victims of a militia once run by former Congolese Vice President Jean-Pierre Bemba in the Central African Republic. The announcement follows the release of Bemba, whose conviction on war crimes charges was overturned by the court. The BBC's Anna Hollogen reports. This time last week, Jean-Pierre Bemba was a convicted war criminal, serving time for murder and rape. Today, he's a free man. There is no question the crimes were committed when the ex-commander's MLC rebel forces crossed the border into the Central African Republic, sent in to suppress an attempted coup. Many of the survivors now want to know, if Jean-Pierre Bemba wasn't to blame, will they ever find out who was? The Democratic Republic of Congo's opposition has meanwhile, meanwhile warned the government against preventing Bemba from returning back home and taking part in the upcoming elections. Opposition MP Toussaint Alango says Bemba remains the most famous political leader in Western DRC. This is a major political event. Bemba was the actual challenger the current president faced in 2006 and today he's the political balance that comes back. Remember, he remains the most famous leader in the country's West. The United Nations General Assembly has voted overwhelmingly in support of a draft resolution deploring what it calls Israel's excessive use of force against Palestinians in the occupied territories, including East Jerusalem. The resolution asks Secretary-General Antonio Guterres to make proposals within 60 days on ways and means for ensuring the safety, protection and well-being of the Palestinian civilian population under Israeli occupation. Sharon Bryce Peace reports. The Arab group took their plight to the general membership. General Assembly resolutions are not legally binding but carry the moral and symbolic weight and reflect the political will of international opinion, a process that was at times confusing. The United States successfully forced a vote to include an amendment that specifically condemned the provocative actions of Hamas that governs in Gaza, and while achieving a slim majority of 62 votes in favor and 58 against with 26 abstentions, they did not attain the two-thirds required for the amendment to be included in the text. The final draft then won an overwhelming majority of 120 in favor, eight against, 
with 45 abstentions. At least 10 people have been confirmed killed and dozens wounded in a fresh attack by gunmen in Algeria's northwest region. Gunmen attacked two villages in the northern state of Zamfara on Tuesday. Zamfara police say security agents responded swiftly to a distress call by residents and the attackers fled into Rugal Forest bordering Zamfara with Katsina State. And finally, two people have been killed and one injured in an attack at a mosque in Malmesbury in South Africa's Western Cape Province. The Muslim Judicial Council says it shocked following the attack in the early hours of this morning. Details are still sketchy. The council's deputy president, Mulana Abdul Khalik Ali, says it's alleged the perpetrator has been killed by police. We all can make a secret that before uh, uh, and that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Town. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apathy. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholisasa Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. The United Nations General Assembly has voted overwhelmingly in support of a draft resolution deploring what it calls Israel's excessive use of force against Palestinians in the occupied territories, including East Jerusalem, after the failure of a similar draft in the Security Council earlier this month because of a U.S. veto. The Palestinian Observer Mission, with the full backing of the Arab group, took their apply to the general membership where 120 countries out of 193 voted in favour of the text. Show and Bryce Peace reports from New York. General Assembly resolutions are not legally binding but do carry the moral and symbolic weight while reflecting the political will of international opinion. Listen to South Africa's Ambassador Jerry Machila. It is unacceptable. The United Nations Security Council has failed once again to act in response to the escalating violence in Gaza and to protect the civilian population of occupied Palestinian territories against the illegal and disproportionate use of force by the Israeli Defense Force. Therefore, the United Nations General Assembly must now assume 
the moral and legal obligation to act effectively, effectively to protect the population living in Palestine and the other occupied territories. In a process that was at times confusing, the United States successfully forced a vote to include an amendment that specifically condemned the provocative actions of Hamas that governs in Gaza. And while achieving a slim majority of 62 votes in favor, 58 against with 26 abstentions, they did not attain the two-thirds required for the amendment to be included in the final draft text. The final draft without the amendment then won an overwhelming majority of 120 in favor, eight against with 45 abstentions. U.S. Ambassador Nikki Haley. What makes Gaza different for some is that attacking Israel is their favorite political sport. That's why we're here today. The nature of this resolution clearly demonstrates that politics is driving the day. It is totally one-sided. It makes not one mention of Hamas, who routinely initiates violence in Gaza. Such one-sided resolutions at the UN do nothing to advance peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Everyone recognizes that. But advancing peace is not the goal of this resolution. Israel's ambassador Danny Danon again reiterated the view that the protests were not peaceful, that Hamas was trying to infiltrate his country, while Israel was being unfairly targeted at the UN. The hypocrisy of the General Assembly should come as no surprise. Last year alone, the General Assembly adopted 20 resolutions condemning Israel. This session has been reconvened 18 times, including today. It is not only a mockery of the UN, it is abuse and misuse of the UN. This type of worldwide assault is reserved only for Israel. It is not criticism, it is not difference in opinion on policy, it is anti-Semitism. The resolution asks the Secretary-General Antonio Guterres to make proposals within 60 days on ways and means for ensuring the safety, protection and well-being of the Palestinian civilian population that are under Israeli occupation. Palestinian Ambassador Riyad Mansour. To condemn, to regret, to express concern is not sufficient. We need action, we need protection of our civilian population. And why should that be offending anyone? We're just asking for a simple thing. We want our civilian population to be protected. Is that a crime to ask for? It is our duty to address all aspects of this crisis. Some 120 Palestinians were killed and several thousand injured during weeks of protest against the occupation along the Gaza dividing line with Israel. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. Let's go back in time to today in 1991. Winnie Nomzamo Mandela, the then wife of Nelson Mandela, was sentenced to six years in jail for her involvement in the kidnapping and beating of four youths suspected of being police informers. One of the youths, 14-year-old Stompise Bay, died from the injuries he sustained. Winnie appealed against the verdict and the sentence was commuted to a fine and a two-year suspended sentence by the appeals court. Today in History, 1991.
The Democratic Republic of Congo's opposition has warned government not to try and prevent Jean-Pierre Bemba from coming back home and be part of upcoming elections. Bemba's lawyers on Tuesday requested for his immediate release from the International Criminal Court after his war crimes conviction was quashed on appeal last week. His supporters have made no secret of their wish to see Bemba return quickly to national politics in the DRC. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. The opposition here in the Democratic Republic of Congo believes that the end of the Jean-Pierre Bemba case is being closed forever after the International Criminal Court decided to release him on bail on Tuesday. The ICC final decision about Bemba's case on bribing witnesses will be known on July the 4th. That former deputy president of the Democratic Republic of Congo is now in Belgium and might come back home any time according to his party, the Movement for Liberation of Congo, MLC. Bemba is described as the only serious opponent able to face the ruling coalition today. The opposition has warned authorities here do not have to try and prevent his coming back home. And according to this opposition MP Toussaint Alonga, Jean-Pierre Bemba remains the most famous political leader in the Western DRC. This is a major political event. Bemba was the actual challenger, the current president faced in 2006 and today he's the political balance that comes back. Remember, he remains the most famous leader in the country's west. In the ruling coalition, some people we have spoken to have expressed the satisfaction to see Jean-Pierre Bemba recovering his freedom and say they wish he should come back home. But what they tried to explain is that Bemba still has so much to do in order to recover the popularity he has lost. And according to this member of the ruling majority, John Mwika, Jean-Pierre Bemba will have it very difficult to convince people who still keep bad memories of what happened here in Kinshasa after the 2006 elections. Congolese people. They're having tendons also, they're having a way to see things. To be in prison is not a favor. You can't compare that to Mandela. According to the current situation, Bemba is not going to have more power like he did have before. Because there's many people from his party, they did leave. He have to do better. I don't know if he can convince Congolese people. Many of them, they having in memory the sin of violence committed uh, after the, the, the election uh, 2006. There was a war in Kinshasa. Many people, they know that. And it was these people who did start with that story. He have to convince people. And he's having a short time to make it. He did not be in contact with the population. It's going to be very difficult for him. And according to the Deputy Secretary General of the ruling coalition, who's also the Minister of Town Planning and Housing, competing with Jean-Pierre Bemba or whoever else, the most important is that winning remains the only aim. Joseph Kokonyangi. Jean-Pierre Bemba has already competed. Jean-Pierre Bemba has already competed against us in 2006 and then should he 
he be a candidate or not, will respect our winning slogan, we win, we win, and we will win at all levels. Jean-Pierre Bemba's political party, the Movement for Liberation of Congo, believes its only candidate for the upcoming presidential election remains the chairman, as he's well known here. But law experts here have explained that Jean-Pierre Bemba doesn't qualify for the December polls since he's no more in line with the electoral law and the independent National Electoral Commission won't be able to accept him for the competition. One of those experts is Charles Mushizi from the Study Center for Justice Reforms. The electoral law says that he must be uh, living in DRC for one year before put his candidacy. This is not the case because he has been uh, all this time, 10 years, uh, the ICC in the prison. The electoral law as well as the constitution say that uh, to be eligible as the head of, uh, of the state, you mustn't be uh, condemned for intentional offenses. Also, this is not the case because uh, Mr. Bemba was condemned for one year. He was accused to have corrupted witnesses in his case. And now the only debate here in Kinshasa at this time is Jean-Pierre Bemba will be allowed to put his candidacy or not. Most of voters remain in confusion since Bemba's party continues to call on supporters to get prepared as their natural candidate is on his way. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. For feedback and questions relating to our show, tweet us at Channel Africa 1 or at Rise Shine Africa. You can also email at info at channelafrica.org or send a WhatsApp message on 277-6300-3327. Channel Africa, the African perspective. Are you interested in generating business leads, networking, forming new partnerships, and igniting growth opportunities? Then you will be interested in the Vision 2030 Summit. Themed Skills, Economic Growth, and Investment, the summit takes place from the 20th to the 21st of June at Emperor's Palace in Ekruleni, South Africa. Speakers include Bonang Mohale, Tsidiso Matuna, Nomalungalogina, Sai Mamabolo, Kanyisele Kweyama, and Risenga Malulega. Space is limited, but there is still time to book seats now at vision2030.co.za. That's vision2030.co.za. Or you can join Channel Africa on both days when we will be broadcasting live from the Vision 2030 Summit. Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective. Men need to start taking care of their health from an early age as an increasing number of young men are suffering and dying from cardiovascular and non-communicable diseases. Experts say diseases such as high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, cancer and diabetes are now more prevalent in the younger male population compared to the past decade. Johannesburg-based GP Dr. Marlon McKay spoke to Tabilim Bele as the South Africa commemorates Men's Health Awareness Month. Men, it's okay to get sick. doesn't make you less of a man for you to pick up a chronic illness. Dr. Marlon McKay, who's been a GP for the past 25 years, encouraging men to be more proactive with their health. It's not necessarily your fault if you pick up cancer. 
all right? So let's be a man. We need to, we need to take responsibility for our health. The cure for cancer is early detection. If we pick it up early, we can guarantee your cure. You come in here late, there's not much we can do. Listen to your body. If there's any change that you cannot explain, loss of weight, blood in your stool, cannot uh, uh, urinate properly, that's a change. Seek help. Diseases such as diabetes, high blood pressure, strokes and heart attacks used to be prevalent in much older men. However, McKay says it's a different picture altogether now. So we're starting to see a lot of prostate cancer. We're starting to see a lot of colorectal cancer. So these are men in their 40s and 50s, can be even healthy. And we've seen that in the media, uh, so-called healthy men, no risk factors, get cancer of the colon. So this is not something that you can preempt. It's something that you have to actively look for and know your body. And probably the most important message to men today is listen to your body. If there's any change that you cannot explain, make sure that you go and have it checked out. McKay says unlike women, men seek medical care when it's already too late and very little can be done to assist them. The prevalence of smoking, the prevalence of obesity, high cholesterol, which is a silent killer, high blood pressure, silent disease. I think the prevalence is probably increasing because of our lifestyle, but also it is awareness. So more and more men are getting diagnosed just purely because they are coming forward. And, and, and what we're seeing too is that this disease is starting to present younger. You know, so prostate, we should think of 60, 70, 80 year old, we're now seeing it in some in the 30s in the 40s and 50s. And so men need to start looking after themselves a lot younger, from their teens already, into their 20s. Sipontuli, who's in his 40s, was forced to pay special attention to his body following a health scare. He says he may not clock in at the gym every day, but he makes an effort to stay active. I am relatively health conscious. However, not the way I should. I park my vehicle deliberately 500 meters away from my office. And lunchtime, I walk back again into my car and enjoy my lunch there, which means a kilometer is up. And then after work, I walk back into my car, which means a minimum of two kilometers per day is covered. Other men we spoke to appear to be satisfied with the little attention they give to their health each year. Uh, I do consider myself health conscious. At the slightest discomfort, I visit my doctor. Uh, I do exercise at least once or twice a month by playing sports socially. I do visit the doctor at least once a year because as one gets older, one becomes more susceptible to all sorts of diseases. I do not exercise at all. I work very long hours. Dr. McKay says wives and girlfriends play a crucial role in encouraging their partners to seek medical care as soon as the need arises. I'm Tabile Mbele in Johannesburg. Delegates attending the Agricultural Research Symposium in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, agree that land reform is necessary in the country. However, they have cautioned lawmakers that this should not have a negative effect on the economy. Neoma Kwiting has more from Pretoria. The CEO of the Agricultural Research Council, Dr. Shadrach Mwefudi, outlined the reasons for the joint symposium with the Land Bank and the National Agricultural Market Council. Parliament, in terms of its resolution, has said the land reform must not adversely affect food security. So how do we ensure that? We can only do that through the engagements with people, uh, and in understanding what models and solutions people are proposing and then exploring what sort of services can we bring as the NAMC, as the Agriculture Research Council and as the Land Bank. 
Professor Fignet Mayer from the University of Pretoria says the country needs to learn from studies of local and international cases to make sound decisions on the land matter. First of all, I think let's get our data right. Let's understand the problem. Let's learn from the cases that we've seen overseas, our own case studies. We've learned a lot over the last 20 years what works and what does not work. Let's formalize a structured plan. Thirdly, we need institutions. If we don't have strong institutions that can drive this program forward, it will fail. It doesn't matter how fancy your plan is. If you don't have the institutions that can structurally, that can drive it, that can execute on it effectively, we'll, in, in the next 10 years or 20 years, we'll still have the same debates. AgriSA's legal advisor, Annalise Crosby, says land reform programs and policies in the country are poorly implemented. We need to learn from the mistakes of the past, and there have been lots of mistakes made over the past 24 years, and I think the high-level report on key legislation um, you know, is very clear on what those mistakes are. The main one, as far as we are concerned, is the poor implementation of the policies and programs that we have. They're good policies and programs, but they haven't been implemented or very poorly implemented. And we believe there should be a strategic partnership between government and private sector to take implementation forward. We think that will make a big difference. Agriculturist Dr. Tulasizem Kabela believes that the land bank has not done enough for emerging farmers. Yes, and I think the land bank has not done its fair share of what it could have done. If you look at their, their loan book right now, you'll find that most of the people that they loan money to are large white commercial farmers as opposed to the emerging farmers, whether they're black or white. But the new farmers are a very small percentage of, of their loan book, which goes to show that they have not really cracked into that market. The land bank says it is doing its best to assist land reform. Sokolo Petros Nchocho is the land bank CEO. We have to accept that the land bank itself as an institution all by itself will not be able to cater for the entire needs of the sector. But what you're doing, we are implementing a set of models that are partnership-based. So, for instance, we would allocate uh, X millions of runs to a project, but at the same time we would get the jobs fund from the National Treasury to make a grant contribution to the project. And in the third instance, you would have a grant contribution as well from an industry organization that is relevant, be it in the horticulture space or the livestock space. So what you do is you combine different forms of funding and create what has come to be known as blended financing, which makes financing for a smallholder farmer more affordable and uh, on better terms in terms of length and so on. That was Land Bank CEO Tsukulo Petrus Nkonko ending that report by Neo Makwiting in Pretoria. South Africa, it's here. The inaugural Soweto International Jazz Festival 2018. It's a global celebration of Soweto from Thursday, June 14th to Sunday, June 17th at the state-of-the-art Soweto Theatre Festival Complex. Win tickets to Soweto International Jazz Festival 2018. Just answer the following simple question. Name two languages that Channel Africa broadcasts in. Name two languages that Channel Africa broadcasts in.
A female police officer in South Africa's Limpopo province who allegedly romantically in, who, who is allegedly romantically involved with the cash and transit heist kingpin has been arrested and fired for giving the suspect a car to escape. It has also been revealed how cash and transit suspects hijacked the sister of a security guard who refused to cooperate with them. These were some of the issues that emerged during a meeting between Parliament's police committee and stakeholders such as the South African Banking Risk Centre, the Private Security Industry Regulatory Authority and the South African Reserve Bank on how to curb cash and transit heists. Mercedes Percent reports. Collusion and the involvement of some police and security employees came under the spotlight. Police Minister Beggy Tele revealed how a Limpopo constable found herself on the wrong side of the law for allegedly assisting a kingpin lover to escape during an arrest. Uh, we have, uh, where we have arrested three last night in uh, Limpopo. We arrested one of ours. is a lady who provided an escape car. That's, that's last night. And is, 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 is romantically involved with the kingpin of the cash heist. So, so these are the things that internally. But it looks like in all other groups that are, are arrested, we have a member of the private security company. The National Police Commissioner Ketla Sitole added that the constable has been fired. My instruction was cut and dry this morning. I said summary dismissal a day before. She's no longer in the organization. That's just my principal approach. So if anyone is involved in crime, is no longer with us. We take our uniform away, the orange uniform is available. Former KZN Hawkshead, Yuan Boysen, who's now the head of security for the Fidelity Security Group, elaborated on the lengths criminals would go to secure the guards' cooperation. Uh, drivers and crew successfully defended an attack. He managed to wound one of the perpetrators. And a month later, they paid him a visit at his house. They managed to trace him and tell him, look, we're the guys that dropped you. We're coming again, but... This time you're not going to defend it because the money is not yours. He reported that. We brought crime intelligence on, on, on board because he does not want to collude with them. Subsequently, now they have now abducted his sister to try and force him to collaborate with, with, with their robbery. So this, we should also be mindful of the, of the intimidation factor uh, with, with, with the employees in the security industry. Business Against Crime South Africa says it wants to help government to root out cash in transit heists. Acting CEO Billy Graham says heists have a negative impact on the economy and the livelihood of South Africans. Chairperson and colleagues, Business Against Crime is willing and ready to work with government and the private sector in this fight against crime because we need, we understand that the efforts need to be stepped up. There are too many lives lost. The, the effect on the economy is just too large. The negative effect on employment is just unacceptable. On the issue of strategies and solutions to the problem, the South African Reserve Bank's Deputy Governor on Financial Stability and Currency, Francois Gruppe, says more research is required to establish what kind of currency protection devices should be used in the cash vehicles. He says devices used in ATMs have proved successful. That was South African Banking Risk Center's Head of Service Delivery, Kevin Ntwiname. Twinham, ending that report, ending that report by Mercedes percent in Parliament. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, the United Nations General Assembly adopts an Arab-backed resolution condemning Israel for Palestinian deaths in Gaza. Two people have been killed and another injured in an attack at a mosque in Malmesbury in South Africa's Western Cape Province. And police and prosecutors in Chile raid offices of the Roman Catholic Church to seize documents relating to mounting claims of sexual abuse. Those are the stories making headlines. The USA, Canada and Mexico will host the 2026 Football World Cup after FIFA delegates voted overwhelmingly to support the North American bid against Morocco. The North African country called for people to vote with their hearts but ultimately lost out to an American offering with more stadiums and revenue for FIFA, as Dan Ashby reports from Moscow. It's worth billions of dollars and is a showcase like no other. The rights to host the 2026 FIFA World Cup came down to this moment. Canada, Mexico and USA have been selected by the FIFA Congress to host the 2026 FIFA World Cup. The joint team of the US, Canada and Mexico reacted with emotion. Sorry, it's a bit emotional for us today. Thank you for entrusting us with this privilege, the privilege of hosting the FIFA World Cup in 2026. The beautiful game transcends borders and cultures. Football today is the only victor. And of course the fans were happy. Have another one on on my country. It's it's, it's something that I can explain. Emotional. Yeah, it's very happy for us. Estamos muy contentos. I think it's, not, it's going to be not easy to, to cross lines and more difficult to do it Mexico to the U.S. But for political reasons, it could be a great thing. But of course, there are always losers. We have taken the bid for nine, nine times and hopefully we hope for the... Ten times. Morocco appealed to people's hearts, saying a second African World Cup would be a real breakthrough in a continent where people live for football. But they seem to have been outdone by United 2026 bid, which had the resources, better infrastructure, stadiums and ultimately revenue. Bringing unity to a divided world was at the heart of the United 2026 bid, a thinly veiled reference to divisions in North America. They promised games streamed to phones and a triple match opening day. Before the announcement, a Mexican delegate told me what it would mean. Having for the third time a World Cup in Mexico would be fantastic. Uh, For us, again, like I mentioned, our main sport is soccer. So I'm sure that 140 million Mexicans would be very happy, including us. So for now, South Africa will remain as the only African country to host the World Cup. But Morocco say this defeat will not stop them trying again. Dan Ashby, SABC News, Moscow. Let's go back in time to today in 1940. German troops entered Paris during World War II, the same day the Nazis began transporting prisoners to the Auschwitz concentration camp in German-occupied Poland. Today in history in 1940.
It's 8.36 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The International Fund for Agricultural Development, IFAD, and the Republic of Mozambique on Tuesday signed a financial agreement with 62 million U.S. dollars that seeks to assist almost 300,000 rural people engaged in agriculture, fisheries, and small and medium-sized enterprises. Limited access to agricultural markets by smallholder farmers in rural areas represents one of the most important challenges confronting developing countries. To find out more on this, we are now joined on the line by IFAD representative and country director for Mozambique, Robson Mutandi. Robson, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Very good morning to you. Now, Robson, talk us... Talk to us about some of the various constraints that smallholders farmers face along the value chain. Okay, thank you so much. I think the the basic uh, uh, approach we are taking for Mozambique is based on a constraint analysis that shows that um, um, the Mozambican smallholder farmer is challenged in many ways by access uh, deficits to several things, and one of them is access to financial services. So we're talking about the smallholder farmer, which in broad terms would include uh, smallholder entrepreneurs, etc., etc. And uh, the access to financial services has come out as one of the critical areas that constrain smallholder farmers across the country. And so in response to that, and in response also to other concerns with other programs that support other things, we then worked with the government uh, of Mozambique to define a program that would initiate this response to uh, the filling of that financial services gap for rural entrepreneurs and rural farmers, particularly for agripreneurs and fisher people along the coast. And this uh, uh, response then uh, led us to to put together several initiatives uh, into a a project that, as you referred earlier on, led us to to the board approval and us allocating $62.1 million to the country. Uh, And so this constraint really... Sorry. No, go ahead, Robson. So these these constraints really are are broad, and they really are specific to certain sectors. They're specific to uh, agricultural smallholder producers. They're specific to smallholder processors. They're specific to uh, um, what you call uh, artisanal fisher people and aquaculture people. So they are are, and so the instruments we have put together will definitely respond to that. But above all, we have also not forgotten that there are people who are we call vulnerable. Uh, members of the community, and these in broadly include uh, HIV-affected families, they include disabilities, people with disabilities, they include very poor people who have no really access to resources. And so we also have a graduation program that pulls them uh, into the commercial activities just like other people. And so we, we, we put together certain packages that would then work with them to graduate them from these areas, levels of poverty into economic activity. Now, Robson, how exactly will this initiative be rolled out? Okay. 
The, 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 the way we have structured it and with, uh, with uh, the government and with the Ministry of Finance particularly is that this will run through a commercial bank, uh, the uh, Investment Bank of Mozambique. And so the $62 million will be organized uh, and managed through this investment bank. And the investment bank will create two windows. One is a window for, okay, there will be a window for managing the program in general. This is a national program covers the whole country. And then within that uh, bank of uh, investment bank of Mozambique, BNI, there will be also a window that we call the fund management window. And so this will operate like any investment window for smallholder farmers to go. If they need resources, they will go to that window. And the fund manager, who will be organized by BNI, will then make facilities or resources available to these guys. We have another window within that fund management window that then allows commercial banks like Barclays or any bank, BMI, Millennium Bank, any bank, commercial bank and MFI in Mozambique to approach BNI and work with BNI to say, okay, we want to wholesale, uh, we want to retail some of your products. And so BNI will then wholesale some of the money through these uh, uh, commercial banks and MFIs, and farmers can then access these resources across the country because we, we also acknowledge that BNI is, is a central uh, a Maputo-based bank. They don't have outreach, so the outreach can only be done through commercial banks and MFIs. And so that, that is one of the ways that we want to make sure that the access is, 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 is made available across the whole country. Banks. Now, and just in terms of in terms of access to commercial banks, what are the requirements for um, the farmers uh, in terms of get, getting access to um, those funds? Because with, normally with commercial banks, there's um, they want uh, some sort of collateral or you know some sort of uh, history. How is that going to work? Yes, we, we have uh, a separate uh, product within the, the design that then uh, allows us to, to, to work with the farmers and the, uh, uh, especially farmers and the entrepreneurs. And this is what we call a business development uh, 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 component. The business development component prepares any applicant who is facing challenges of collateral or anything or access or who is not deemed uh, bankable by the bank to come through that uh, facility of business development and work with these business development units and then the business development units will kind of sort of guarantee to the bank through another small grant, kind of a, a, a matching grant arrangement, that this fellow we are proposing to you is bankable and we, in, in the event that he or she is defaulting, uh, we, we, we guarantee you a certain level of, 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 of guarantee financing uh, for, for that person. So. The farmers can then work through this uh, business development unit to really develop proper business plans, even for a small half hectare proposal, uh, and then the, 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 the certification is brought through that system, and then they can go to the bank with that piece of paper. And the bank then can be can feel comfortable that there's a third party who is guaranteed that this person has got the resources and the collateral or the knowledge, particularly the knowledge. One of the critical areas that we are facing with the banks, and we had a lot of interaction with commercial banks, is that they are not sure whether these guys are good farmers. So someone has to tell them that, yes, we guarantee that this fellow will produce 10 tons of maize per hectare or 5 tons of maize per hectare. So that process is done through the business development uh, process.
Now, Robson, now, several studies have uh, been done and have indicated that um, how smallholder fa- farmers can be linked to markets, but they have failed to address issues of how to increase the likelihood of these farmers benefiting from high-value markets. Will this initiative speak to that challenge? And uh, in terms of IFAD, will you be involved in ensuring that these markets are retained? Yes, I think the, 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 there's always, um, farming is a business, and that is the approach we are taking. So we, we don't take this business as, uh, as, as a social activity. I mean, I've said uh, even in forums in South Africa and everywhere that uh, social farming is not something that we entertain. Uh, we, we want people to do farming as a business. Now, you'll notice that competing in a, in a very um, uh, uh, active value chain uh, with big and small guys, with big guys particularly, is, is not an easy challenge. It's not an easy thing. So the challenge is that uh, these farmers have to produce and convince, for instance, a good example, we have to, they have to convince uh, ShopRite uh, in Maputo not to, to rely on produce from South Africa or produce from a big commercial farmer, but say, look, we can provide high-quality uh, green peppers to your market on a daily basis of this quality, of this rigidity. And the, as long as that process of confidence building with, between the, 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 the market and the producer is built up, that's what we are working on very strongly, to make sure that there's a confidence building process that creates trust between the, the market and the producers. And then, so we, we, we then uh, make sure that the, 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 these, these farmers are then are competing on the same kind of level with the bigger guys and with, uh, with the same quality or even better. Mm. Remember that the smaller unit, the smaller production you have, the, sometimes you have a better quality because you are dealing with smaller quantities. And so the market demands a certain product. And the farmer, be, be it a small person or a big person, should provide that product and the quality uh, that the, the, the market demands. So that is a huge challenge, and they are right in picking up that this is how small farmers get squeezed out. Mm. Robson? We, we have had programs that, that subsidize that thing, and we are, not, we are not really going to be doing that kind of thing. They have to produce at the same level and even better, better quality. Than commercial farmers. Robson, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. That was Robson Mutandi, International Fund for Agricultural Development's representative and country director for Mozambique. Our economics update up next with Tabi Sulohoku. Good morning. The African Development Bank has approved a 15 million US dollar equity investment in Africa Food Security Fund to support enterprises in agribusiness SMEs and enhance food security in Africa. The Africa Food Security Fund is a second generation fund targeting a total capitalization of 100 million dollars. The fund will invest in potential high growth for small and medium enterprises operating in the food and agriculture value chains across sub-Saharan Africa. It aims to address the needs of at least served operators in agriculture, agricultural SMEs segment that are not targets of the larger private equity funds and commercial banks.
African governments must strengthen their macroeconomic management while reducing borrowing as a way to lower the overall level of interest rates affecting housing finance on the continent. This is the view of a consultant for the World Bank and other donors on financial sector development in Africa and East Asia, Michael Fox, in a Center for Affordable Housing Finance in Africa report on lowering the high interest rates cost of housing finance in Africa. Fuchs, however, conceded that the challenges of achieving these broad objectives are much more pervasive and do not relate to the housing finance agenda alone. South Africa's Workers' Union, NUM, says there will not be a total shutdown at Power Utility, but its members will march to Askham's headquarters in Johannesburg to hand over a memorandum. NUM and a fellow union, NUMSA, will hold a one-day strike against Askham's decision not to increase salaries this year. Askham has also appealed to its employees to return to work while the company tries to find a solution to the salary crisis. Askham's CEO, Pagamani Hadebe, says that the company will take the necessary step to ensure a constant electricity supply. To ensure that we continue to keep the lights on, we have activated our contingencies and currently all power stations are operating. And furthermore, we will also consider a court interdict if necessary to protect the interests of our employees and our assets and to further ensure the security of supply. I humbly appeal to the organized labor to the ASCOM employees to return to work while we try to find an amicable solution to this challenge. Telecommunication giant Apple will change the default settings of its iPhone operating system to strengthen and protect it against unauthorized access by hackers or others trying to bypass encryption. The move will also make it more difficult for police to unlock handsets. The BBC's Dave Lee reports. Not for the first time, Apple's approach to protecting its devices will frustrate police forces who believe the power to unlock iPhones and iPads is crucial to their work. Apple maintains, however, that having a so-called back door into its devices poses a security risk for all of its users. Two years ago, this debate reached a courtroom when Apple refused to provide a tool to the FBI to help unlock the iPhone belonging to Saeed Farouk, the man responsible for a shooting that left 14 people dead. The US dollar trades at 10.4 Botswana Pula. It's a 10-4 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the US dollar is trading at 371 Brazilian Rail, at 6271 Russian Ruble, and at 6749 Indian Rupee. It's at 639 Chinese Yuan and at 1330 to the South African Rand. It's also trading at 74 pence to the British pound and at 84 cents to the Euro. Gold is trading at $1,298, a platinum $899 pounds. So the price of brand crude oil is $76.60 a barrel. I'm Tabisolo Hoko. Well, the day is finally upon us. From 3 p.m., I think it's Central African time, that'll be the launch or the opening ceremony of uh, the World Cup 2018 in Russia. 
And then uh, the first match is Russia against Saudi Arabia. A very big game indeed. We're looking forward to see that game when uh, Russia opens up. And uh, Russia hasn't been in the World Cup for some time. They are ranked down there, number 70-something. And uh, Saudi Arabia ranked in the 60s as well. Mm. But World Cup is different from the rankings. Rankings don't say anything. Mm. You'll see in the field of play a different ball game. So who are you going with? Russia. And for the World Cup? I go with uh, two teams, two countries. Nigeria? Uh, no, no. <laughs> no, I, I'm, 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 I'm with uh, Brazil and Argentina. And then I, I wish, this is a wish, I uh-huh. don't know. Maybe uh-huh. if there were horses, I could win something. <laughs> but uh, I, I wish Belgium could go further. I think Belgium could do better. And then the team of the tournament, that is going to be a very upcoming team for the next World Cup, it's Iceland. You think so? Iceland. Mm. Watch Iceland. Okay, that's our I don't sports know about Mario. Mario, do, do, do you know Iceland? Iceland, Mario? Yeah. Okay, Iceland. so I've got two p- sports fanatics here, football fanatics, yeah. talking of Iceland. But now from the continent, from Africa. So African, African countries are not going to do bad, but uh, I don't see them going to the quarterfinals. Okay, some... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you see, uh, they will they will play very well. They had no problems prior to the to the World Cup this time around. Uh-huh. But uh, your preparations were not that good. Okay. Let's yeah. see. Let's wait and see. I'll ask you again after a couple of days. Yeah. Give us an update. First up, we're looking at what's coming up in the World Cup uh, starting this afternoon. Former Mamelodi Sundowns and Cameroon midfielder Roger Fetuma believes that African teams, Egypt, Morocco, Nigeria, Senegal and Tunisia, have enough quality to take them far at the FIFA World Cup tournament, which starts today in Russia. Oh, what the players have to do? They have to remain professional in his mind. Uh, and be, like, like I'm saying, most of the players today, especially in that Senegalese team, most of them are playing in Europe. Most of them, are, I, I believe, have professional mindset with where they are playing. Uh, competitive football in Europe, most of them England, uh, France and all that. So, for me, as you have also aged, if Stanley have recovered from injury uh, from the Champions League, uh, I believe it's going to be a good uh, asset for, for AG2. Uh, like I say, uh, some you need to, only need to be focused, only need to be tactically uh, prepared to, to, to compete uh, with... Uh, because football at that level is not only about having a good skill. Uh, you need to uh, play as a, as a team, you need to understand that you play for a country, you need to make sure that you keep focused all the time, all the time, all the time. Because for only one second, you lost concentration. Uh, it changed everything. And rugby Springbok log, Archie Sneeman believes that England will come at the Springboks in their second test at the Castle Lager incoming series in Bloemfontein on Saturday. Oh, I think they've also learned the same as we did um, through the first test. And um, yeah, so I think they'll just come back harder this week, but so will we. So I'm looking forward to the game. And finally, with cricket news, Afghanistan will realize a long-cherished dream when they debut as a test nation today. But Captain Asghar Stanikazai ruled out being nervous ahead of the match against the top-ranked host, India. That's the Sport News this hour.
Channel Africa brings you wall-to-wall coverage of the 2018 FIFA World Cup Finals in Russia. Visit our dedicated World Cup page on www.channelafrica.org.za for in-depth coverage which includes previews, reviews, analysis, breaking news and podcasts of latest interviews. We will also bring you the very latest news from Russia with our Nigerian correspondent Tony Ubani and the BBC's reporters in our daily hourly sports bulletins and on the Africa at Play sports show on Friday, Saturday and Sunday from 5pm to 6pm Central African time. Channel Africa, your home of the 2018 FIFA World Cup Finals. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, Rise and Shine at the Sawa. UN condemns Israel for using excessive force at Gaza border and the DRC opposition warns government not to prevent Jean-Pierre Bemba from coming home. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumusa Ramagaza and Selina Ntobong, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org. WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327 or tweet us at Rise Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is the official 2018 FIFA World Cup song titled Live It Up by Nicky Jam featuring Will Smith and Ira Estrefi. Oh yeah, we've been waiting for this. Oh yeah, we all at? We-